I would tell you to put on your thinking caps now, but they would probably get blown off by this passage. This is one of the the most mind-blowing sections of all of Holy Scripture. This is the deep end of the pool. In fact, there's a word that we're going to probably be using a lot this morning that we should just get out there, okay? It's the word, wow. You might want to practice saying it because you're probably going to be saying it a number of times this morning. Go ahead. Wow. (laughs) Some of you are probably going to elongate that to two syllables, so that becomes wowza, okay? Go ahead and say that to your friend next to you. Wowza. Because one of the most important applications of this passage for our lives today is simply to be amazed. Here's my title for this sermon. I took it from verse 20, where our Lord tells His hearers that what He is teaching them is going to be to your amazement. In other words, wow, the... The King James Version has there, some of you have the King James, what does it say? That ye may marvel. The New Living Translation, you will be truly astonished. The the Christian Standard Bible says, you will be amazed. If your Bible is all emojis, it's just the head exploding like this. Right? So what Jesus is teaching us here is supposed to hit us like a ton of bricks. It's supposed to tax our capacities to understand. It is supposed to bend our brains and blow our minds. And at the same time, we're supposed to receive it. So let's do that. Let's receive it by faith and let it blow our minds. Let's take the plunge into the deep end of the pool and swim around in our amazement. I have four points of amazing application this morning. And here's the first one. Marvel. How God is Son and Father. Marvel how God is Son and Father. Be amazed to see how God is Son and God is Father. Now to really get this, we have to back up and remind ourselves what we read last week. You remember seven days ago? I know we had a holiday in between. There's been a lot of turkey in between last week and now. Verse 18 told us, the previous verse, that the leaders of the Jews were trying to kill Jesus. They're trying to kill our Lord. Do you remember why? It's because he said two words. My Father. To refer to God. He called God in a way nobody else can, my Father. Father, And that made the Jewish leaders want to put Jesus to death. Can I just say it? Wow. Do you remember the story? Jesus was walking through the crowd at that pool of Bethesda, and he saw a man lying there who had been unable to walk for 38 years. And Jesus healed that man with a word. He simply said, get up, take up your mat, and walk. And the guy He couldn't walk for 38 years. And all of a sudden, he could. He got up. He took up his bedding and he walked away. He probably danced away. Wow! But this healing happened on a certain day of the week. It's called the what day? 
the Sabbath day. And that made the Jews mad because this man was now carrying something on the day of rest and that broke their rules. Didn't actually break the law, but it broke their rules about the law. And so they came after Jesus for healing him and sending him carrying something on the Sabbath day and they persecuted Jesus. They attacked Jesus at this point, especially with words, fighting words. And did Jesus apologize? He was like, oh, I'm sorry, guys. Didn't mean to do that. Did he just kind of give a defense? Well, you have to understand and see it my way. No, he went on the offensive. He said in verse 17, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. That's why they wanted to kill him. Look at verse 18. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Do you see the logic? Now think about this from their perspective, because you know they have a point. How many gods are there? Peter, how many gods are there? One, right? What has been engraved into the Jewish mind since the beginning of their nation? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one. There's only one God. So if anyone else comes along and says that they are God, then that would make two gods, right? And the Jews have learned over and over again, often the hard way, anybody remember the book of Jeremiah? To reject all other gods. Anyone who sets up another god should be rejected and under their law put to death. So this guy, Jesus, comes along and he says, my father is always working, even on the Sabbath. And these guys are no dummies. They know what he's saying. They know he's talking about God. God is the only one who works on the Sabbath without breaking the Sabbath, right? God can't break the Sabbath. God rested from creating on the Sabbath, but he didn't stop all of his working, did he? If God stopped working on the Sabbath, we're all in a mess of trouble, right? The universe flies apart. And Jesus says that he himself is working on the Sabbath. He doesn't say, well, I'm not really working on the Sabbath. I'm just healing and it's not a big deal. He says that other places, right? But here he says, oh yeah, I'm working. I'm working on the Sabbath. That's what my dad does. I do it too. Jesus is saying that he stands in a unique son-father relationship with God. And they think it's blasphemy. And it would be if it were not true. Listen to verse 18 again. He was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Yes, he was. If God has a son, what does that make the son? God too, right? If a human man fathers a son from his own nature, then the son is human as well, right? So if God has a son that comes from his own nature, not an adopted son, not just a son in some kind of a metaphor, but actually, truly his son, then that son is God as well. 
But here's the thing. There are not two gods. There's only one. You see, the Jews were concerned that Jesus was setting himself up as a second god. Independent from Yahweh. A second god that would inevitably compete with Yahweh. The son versus the father. Jesus says, no, it's not like that at all. There is only one God, only one supreme being, and that one God is Son and Father. Now, we're going to learn later on in this book that God is also Spirit, but we'll just deal with one mind-blowing idea for today. The Son and the Father are not independent of one another. They are, in fact, in perfect unity. They are, in fact, one. Now, you know this already because you have memorized John 1.1. Remember that? Before we did John 3.16, we did John 1.1 together as a church family. What does it say? In the beginning was the Word. And we said that that Word is another name for God the Son. We learn later on that the Word became flesh. That's Jesus. So the Word was in the beginning before creation. He is eternal. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now that shows some kind of distinction and also unity, right? With, with God. Back in July, we called it withness, right? They, they are perfectly together. And then how does the verse end? The Word was with God, and the Word was God always for all eternity withness and wasness isness right God the Son is with God the Father and the Son is God just like the Father is and they're not two gods but they are Son and Father anybody going wow that gets us to our passage for today. Yes, that was all by way of introduction. Look now and marvel at how God is Son and Father. How? Verse 19. The Jews want to kill him, so Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. <laughs> wow. Now just try to wrap your mind around this. It's okay if it doesn't go all the way around, okay? It's not supposed to, actually. It's meant to stretch us as far as it'll stretch us. Allow yourself to be amazed. Jesus starts by saying that he tells us the truth. Literally, he says, amen and amen, yes and yes, truly and truly, this is how it is, listen up. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself, he can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever this father does, the son also does. Are they at odds with one another? Is there a competition going on between two gods? No, they cannot be any closer. They're not in competition. They're in perfect harmony, like a perfect father and son. In fact, 
fathers and sons are actually like what they are. They are the prototype of all. If you ever see fathers and sons just getting along just perfectly, you go, ooh, that's what it's like in heaven. In the ancient world, most sons grew up to do what they saw their father doing. So Jesus, for example, grew up in the home of his adoptive father. What was his name? Joseph. And Joseph was a construction worker. He was a tectone. Sometimes we translate that word carpenter. So Jesus would have learned by watching his craftsman dad doing his trade and would have also grown up doing that trade. See, here's how you make this, son. Here's how you make a chair. Okay, now you make one too. So in many ways, sonship in the ancient world was also apprenticeship. And Jesus says that God is something like that. God the Father works. He does all kinds of God things, like healing on the Sabbath. That's a thing God does. And guess what? God the Son does all kinds of God things too. In fact, all the same things. He doesn't do anything on his own. He doesn't go off and try this other thing, weird, new, wrong. He does everything with and like his father. Theologians call this the doctrine of inseparable operations. You can now impress Greg Strand with that one next time at Stay Sharp. Walk up to him, Kurt, and say, I was thinking recently about the doctrine of inseparable operations. Greg will love it. He might quiz you on it then afterwards. But. It's from verse 19. Whatever the Father does, the Son also does, which shows that they are both God and one God, withness and wasness. They share their very being and they share all of their actions and they share all of their affections. Look at verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all He does. <laughs> wow. We could marvel at that one forever and a day. Someday I'm going to preach a sermon just on that verse. The Father loves the Son and shows Him all He does. They're not in competition. They're in perfect harmony. The Father doesn't hold anything back from the Son. And then Jesus kicks it up a notch. He says, yes, to your amazement, He will show you even greater things than these. What, what, what could He be talking about? What greater things is Jesus mentioning here? I think it's greater things than, than simply healing someone on the Sabbath with a word. That's pretty great but there's something greater. It's greater than all the miraculous things we've seen Jesus do so far in this book, knowing things about Nathaniel under the fig tree, the woman at the well, knowing her backstory, turning water into wine, healing the nobleman's son with a word, healing this man who's been lame for 38 years, greater things than healing. Can you think of anything greater than healing? How about raising the dead? That's right. Look at verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. 
Only God can raise the dead. Only God can give someone that kind of new life. And Jesus says that just as the Father does that, even so he can do it too. And in fact does. He gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. And Jesus is going to have more to say about that in just a few verses. This pattern gets repeated several times here. The Father does something, and so therefore the Son does too. The Father does something, and therefore the the Son does too. But in verse 22, Jesus says that the Father has delegated something to the Son that in some way even the Father won't do. Look at verse 22. Moreover, the Father judges no one but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. How is that for amazing? He says, to your amazement. Yes, to my amazement. God the Father can judge. And I'm sure that because of inseparable operations, He still does judge in some way. And verse 30 will make that clear. But He has entrusted the Son to be the executor of judgment in a way that no one else is? So now you know who your ultimate judge is going to be. You know the name of your judge. It is Jesus. And here's why the Father has given this judgment to the Son. Look at verse 23. That, here's the purpose, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Let's make that point number two. Honor the Son as you do the Father. Because that's why the Father has given Jesus the job of judgment, so we should make every effort to honor Him. Honor God the Son as we honor God the Father. Do you see the logic here? Imagine going to a master craftsman's shop and finding a, in that shop a father master craftsman and a son master craftsman working together in that shop in perfect master craftsman unity. Okay, do you have that kind of idea in your mind? And so you go in and you want to buy the best thing they make on their menu. Okay, of the, of the list of things that they make, you want the very best thing on the menu. And you're talking over the counter, and the father master craftsman says, we will make you one of those. In fact, my son will make it for you. He can do everything I do just as well as I do. So I'm going to give this project to him. You see how that honors the son? It says he has everything the father has. He says, it says that he, he is everything the father is, except the father. He is, they are, equal in everything, including in eternal judgment. Now, of course, that analogy breaks down like all analogies of the Trinity break down because in the master craftsman shop, the father and the son are different beings, not just different persons. And the craftsman's son has to learn his craft. The the father is always ahead of the son in that shop until the son overtakes him. He isn't equally, eternally a perfect craftsman as well. But you still get the picture. 
God the Son and God the Father are one eternal being. And the truth shines through that God the Father has honored God the Son with the job of judgment to show that He is equal with the Father. He is God. He's God the monogenes. Remember we memorized that in chapter 1 and chapter 3? He's God the one and only Son. We sometimes say the only begotten. And we should honor Him. Because if you don't honor Jesus this way, you're not honoring God the Father. See how Jesus said that? There's a lot of ways to dishonor Jesus. You can treat him as a lesser, as lesser in some way than the Father. A lot of heresies have done that over the centuries. Arianism is one of the, the chief ones to treat Jesus like he's, he's, he's really, really special, but he's not. God. You can treat him just like a good teacher or a moral example. A lot of the world does that. You might even say he's a prophet. Many of today's world religions say that Jesus is a great prophet. But if you don't honor Jesus as God the Son, you're not honoring God the Father. A bunch of people got together over some waffles this morning down the hallway to talk about how to honor Jesus this Advent season. I was so encouraged to hear about that. How are you honoring Jesus right now? Some people want to make Jesus out to be just a nice person, but that will not do because of what he says here, right? Is this guy a nice person? If you don't honor me, you're not honoring God. That's what he said. If you don't honor me, you're not honoring God. If someone says that about himself, he's either loony or he wants something, right? Trying to get something out of you. Or he is all that, right? Have you ever heard that argument that's often called the trilemma? It's not a dilemma, it's a trilemma. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. Those are the only options for someone who talks like this. Isn't this amazing how Jesus talks about himself? This is shocking stuff. For a human being to run around saying that all people should honor him or they're not honoring God the way they should is just breathtaking arrogance. Or it's the truth and we need to bow. You see how close he says he was to God? He was saying, in other words, that he was with God and he was God. And if you don't honor him, you aren't honoring God. And then he says something even more amazing. Look at verse 24. This is incredibly important. It's a crucial truth from the lips of Jesus and our eternal destinies hang on it. Verse 24. I tell you the truth. Amen and amen. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. That's our next verse to memorize as a church from the Gospel of John. Everybody should have this one embedded in your mind and heart because your eternal destiny rides upon it. Let's make it, in fact, point number three this morning. Hear the Son and believe the Father. 
Now again, see how they're in perfect unity? You hear the Son, you believe the Father, you're doing the same thing there. Listen again to verse 24. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word, the word of the Son, and believes him who sent me, that's the Father, has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death to life. Crossed over from death to life. So, we start in death. And then we hear this voice, the voice of the Son. And we believe the one who sent the Son. And we cross over from death to life. From death to life. From, from Someone in this state has gone from heading to hell to heading to heaven. He's crossed over from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. And that person will not be condemned, he says. They're forgiven. They're free. They're redeemed. They're not under eternal judgment. Instead, they have eternal life. See how this is life and death? This is eternal life and eternal death. You and I are born headed towards eternal death. We deserve condemnation because of our sins. We deserve, in the words of John 3.16, to perish But Jesus has come and died in our place. He's been sent by the Father. He, in fact, has been given. We said it earlier in the service. God so loved the world that he gave his monogenes, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That's the same truth here in verse 24. Whoever hears the word of the Son, the word of the word, The same word who speaks life and the man gets up. If you hear the word of the word saying, live. And believes him who sent the son. That's the father. He has eternal life. Do you see that has? That's present possession. That's right now. And will not be condemned. And that's ever. He's crossed over from death to life. Have you crossed over? I don't mean have you died yet. I mean, are you alive? Everybody has to cross over or they're still on the side of death. If you don't know if you've crossed over, it is possible that you have not. And some who think they have, have not because they haven't listened to the word of the Son calling them to repent and believe in what He has done and what He has done alone for eternal life. Have you crossed over? Now, some are not sure exactly when they crossed over. That's okay. I can't remember when I was born. My mom does. But I don't remember when I was born. But I know I was born because I'm alive. What's important is to have made the cross over to life. Hear the word of the Son and believe the Father who sent him to die in your place and you will have eternal life right now and will not be condemned for eternity. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ and it's the best news in all of the world. And it's what our church is all about. And it's what Jesus is up to right now. Look at verse 25. 
I tell you the truth. There it is again. Amen and amen. A time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. They'll cross over. Now, the timing in that verse is really important. Notice what he says. Notice he says that it's about a time that is coming or an hour that is coming and has now come because Jesus has come and is coming again. The dead here are, I think, spiritually dead in verse 25. That's the emphasis. They're dead in their trespasses, dead in their sins. They haven't crossed over yet. But the Son of God has now come and called for their faith. Believe in me. And those who hear his call and respond in faith live. They have life in Jesus' name. Have you heard his voice calling to you? And have you responded by believing the one who sent him? If so, then you have life. How is it that the Son can give us this life? If you thought this, this passage couldn't get any more amazing, you have another think coming. Because in verse 26, Jesus kicks it up another astonishing notch. Look at verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. So the son can give life because he has this quality of life called life in himself. What is that? And where does he get it? Well, he gets it, it says, in some way from the father. Notice that it does not say that the son gets his life from the father. That's normal, right? But this is more complicated than that. Because the son is not like every other living thing in creation that gets its life from the father. The son is just like the Father. He has life in himself. This is only true of God. Jeff, who made God? Nobody, right? Nobody. God is self-existent. He is uncreated. Nobody made him. He's just alive. He's alive of himself. His name, Yahweh, comes from the, the verb to be, right? He says, I am. God has life in himself. So let me ask you this. Who created God the Son? It's trickier. But the answer is, that's right, Jeff. Nobody. Nobody created God the Son. He always is. He's God the Son. As Son of the Father. The Son has eternally existed as the Son. And the Father is eternally granted to the Son to be self-existent, to have life in Himself. <laughs> they both have the same godness. The same uncreated self-existence. And the Father has 
given it to the Son by virtue of their eternal relationship of Son and Father. Now, the big theological word for that, if you can impress Greg with this one, Kurt, it's eternal generation. Okay? Stick that one away and in your brain and throw it onto Greg in February. Eternal generation, eternal Father and Son. Because there was never a time when the Son was not the Son. So the Son is not just God with God and God and was God, but is always from God. There's another one for you, fromness. He's got fromness. He's got eternal withness, eternal wasness, and eternal fromness. And you see why I call this the deep end of the pool. Wow. Let's just swim around in that a little bit. This is why the eternal son has eternal life to give to you and me. Because he has in himself unlimited, self-generated, self-replenishing life in himself to dispense it as he pleases. And he also has the authority to judge. And that's verse 27. And he, the Father, has given him, the Son, authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Jesus is the the one predicted in the Old Testament, the Son of Man, who would come to be the judge of all humankind and the Savior of his people. This afternoon, pull out Daniel chapter 7 and look and see who is the Son of Man. He's the Son of God and he's also the Son of Man. And we saw in verse 22, the Father has entrusted the Son with the authority to judge, the authority to decide forever where someone spends their eternity. Jesus says that that authority belongs to him. And then he says this, look at verse 28. Get ready to chuckle. Do not be amazed at this. (laughs) Every time I read that this week, I'm just like, sorry, I got to be amazed at this. I can't help but laugh because everything you've said here has been amazing and you're just kicking it up a notch. I don't think he actually means to not be astonished. I think he means don't let yourself be so astonished that you can't receive what I'm saying. You shake your head and say, oh no, that can't be true. That's too much. Don't do that. Because really, you ain't seen nothing yet. That's what he's saying. Don't stop being amazed. Because it gets even more amazing. Look at verse 28. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Jesus is saying, in effect, hold on to your hats because there's a time coming. And unlike verse 25, this time has not yet come. When I'm going to say the word and people won't just be healed, people are going to come out of their graves. In fact, he says, all who are in their graves will come out. At the voice of Jesus. Jesus is going to say the word and everybody who's in a grave 
is going to come out of it. In chapter 11, we're going to see a foretaste of this when Jesus says to a dead man, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus walks out of the tomb alive. If Jesus had not specified Lazarus, every grave would have opened. Wow. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. And Jesus will decide what will he use? What will he use to decide? Jesus will look at, the, at our lives and see if they have evidence of faith in them. That's what he means in verse 29 by those who have done good. He doesn't mean those who live clean moral lives or those that have done more good than bad. He means those whose lives have been changed because they put their faith in him. He just said in verse 24 that those who will not be condemned are those who heard the word of the Son and believed the Father. That's the same people as verse 29, those who've done good, those who've crossed over. And those who have done evil in verse 29 are those who have never crossed over from unbelief to faith, from death to life. See, we're judged by our works to see if they show that we have faith. We are, of course, not saved by our works but by faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. And Jesus will know. And he will judge justly. He will judge in perfect harmony with his Father. He's not some independent rival God that threatens the Father. He is God the Son, eternally begotten of the Father, from the Father, with the Father, seeking to please the Father in everything. You see how he echoes verse 19 and verse 30? By myself I can do nothing. The Son can do nothing outside the Father. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself but him who sent me. This is point four and last. Prepare to be judged by the Son to please the Father. Are you ready for that? Because there's no fooling him. You and I will, will not get off on a technicality. This judge makes no mistakes. And you can't be like, well, I can get by Jesus, but I don't know about the Father. They're perfectly in sync because they're one. He will see if we have faith in him or not, and he'll be able to tell. He is bent on pleasing his Father, and there's no injustice in his Father. And the day is coming soon. Either the day of our death or the day of his return. To our amazement.